uh, Elizabeth Keller, Director of Public Policy for the International City County Management Association. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to ICMA's first weekly teleconference on COVID-19 issues. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Oscar Allen, an epidemiologist who is Chief of Programs and Services for the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Dr. Allen will give us an update on COVID-19 and the impact that community mitigation can have on the spread of the disease. Following his presentation, you will have an opportunity to ask questions. Dr. Allen? Thank you very much, um, Elizabeth. It is a pleasure to be with uh, my colleagues from the ICMA. Um, I will do my best to provide a summary of what's happening, but as many of you are no doubt aware, things are in uh, beyond fluid. They're in rapid fire session. Uh, so the first I would start with, let me think about the global perspective. Uh, at least of today, uh, this morning, we've estimated around 255,000 uh, confirmed cases uh, with uh, associated 10,400 deaths as it relates to COVID-19. Uh, specifically in the United States of America, and to illustrate how quickly things have moved, next slide, the, uh, just about a week ago, we had estimated only uh, about 20 or so uh, states that had COVID-19. Next slide. But as we see now, we have COVID that has uh, essentially uh, coronavirus cases in every uh, one of our states uh, and in a number of our territories. Next slide. Specifically, uh, there are over 10,000 cases uh, between uh, all the states, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. There have also been uh, estimated around 150 confirmed deaths. These cases are travel-related, uh, cases of what we've seen, community, person-to-person -person spread, uh, and of course, there are still a couple presumptive cases that are under investigation. So when you hear these numbers, think about them in the total picture. Next slide. So one of the questions and the concerns we've heard with respect to COVID, you can have a range of mild symptoms to severe symptoms. Uh, and they can start as far as fever, cough, and predominantly shortness of breath. But recognizing that these things change with respect to your underlying medical conditions and what we know and are seeing in our population. Relatively healthy people have also had cases of serious illness, uh, but long and short, we anticipate and are most concerned about those in our population who are medically fragile, who uh, may have uh, significant underlying medical conditions, such as heart disease, diabetes, uh, cancer, and other related conditions. Next slide. So where does that leave us with respect to risk? Uh, as you know, early in the stage of a response, a lot of the conversation was that uh, the average risk to the American population is low. What we have now seen uh, with the progression and the rapid way this illness has spread through our population, we have found areas of elevated risk in communities. Uh, we are particularly concerned about those who have close contacts, uh, as well as those who obviously have traveled, uh, even though that's lesser in the case now because we've moved into more and more community spread, and most specifically, those healthcare and frontline workers who are in uh, the front lines of trying their best to address uh, illness and also uh, treating and identifying those who may be sick uh, with this particular illness. Next slide. So part of the most recent update uh, has been the uh, President's initiative of 15 days to slow the spread. 
And I'll try to explain some of that in greater detail. But as you know, there's been a lot of uh, changes overnight. Uh, there's been uh, shelter-in-place uh, declarations. There's been movement to ensure uh, non-essential travel, uh, especially around individuals who are um, in uh, regular, I would say, business, but not in the emergency aspect of uh, providing care. And you're asking several uh, states have really moved to a sense of trying their best to slow the spread and try, hopefully, uh, to have less of an impact uh, as this disease passes on through our population. Next slide. So what are some of these actions? You've probably heard, and I'll probably do my best to uh, explain in some detail, uh, there are community-based testing sites that have been stood up in many of our cities. Uh, there's been screening and, of course, quarantine. There's been questions and concern around vaccine and treatment development, recognizing that this particular illness does not have any known treatment or they does not exist, uh, there isn't a vaccine that exists uh, to treat or prevent COVID. There's also been constant updated guidance, and really uh, a lot of you, especially in the uh, realm where you sit and the uh, duties that you perform, are probably uh, very well acquainted this time with the local pandemic preparedness plans uh, and uh, developing situational awareness among the several agencies of government, uh, in addition to the private industry. Next slide. So uh, you've seen probably a lot about this, and as an epidemiologist, you know, I, I, I like graphs, but uh, the idea here around mitigation is simple. If nothing is done uh, to try to prevent the spread, you will see a rapid increase of cases over time, and that is the dark purple uh, section of this slide. Once you try your best to initiate interventions or strategies such as social distancing, um, providing shelter in place, uh, removement of, of people going around very freely but trying their best to slow the flow of the illness, the flatten the curve rate is essentially speaking to how these interventions can slow that large-scale impact of cases in your population and keep it more prolonged so that it does not overwhelm your uh, utilities, your uh, transportation realms, your general business, and of course, your healthcare system. Next slide. I use this as an example of how uh, to illustrate that same point. Uh, what you see here uh, with the dark blue and dark red uh, versus the light blue and yellow are the differences between when community mitigation was done in Hong Kong versus Italy. Uh, when Italy did not um, in, initiate several uh, mitigation strategies, their cases just went up in a spiral. And versus Hong Kong, uh, to the right, you would notice that though they still had cases, they were able to essentially flatten and level that curve. Next slide. So one of the areas of trying to address this has been uh, several funding opportunities. And uh, there, since the time of this slide, there's been additional recommendation around identifying new funding sources to support our, our infrastructure. There was an $8.3 billion emergency funding that was approved and appropriated by Congress here in the U.S. Uh, $950 million of those uh, dollars were uh, slated for states and locals to address their immediate needs. Half of those dollars are supposed to be going out the door uh, to ensure that they can even be reimbursed for activities that have begun since uh, the start of this illness on our side of the coin uh, in January. Uh, we know that there's $826 million for 
development of vaccine cures, uh, and of course, identifying treatments that may be approved, and then $136 million for the reimbursement of some of the governmental assets that have been moved around uh, to address this immediate concern. There's been other funding packages that have been that are in lines of being discussed. Some of them have even larger numbers than the 8.3 million. Uh, but the goal here is to try to find ways to mitigate and support not only the uh, the health infrastructure and the emergency and the first responder um, areas of our industry, but also the global and financial impacts that we are seeing in our lives. Things have obviously changed versus what they were a week ago. Next slide. Actually, I'll skip that slide, I'm sorry, just for the sake of time. So one of the things, especially from a government um, management standpoint, that will be important to realize, we realize, we've seen a reduction in staffing over the last uh, five to seven years. We've also identified that there's been a significant need to strengthen that workforce, whether it's your emergency managers, your public health nurses, your uh, environmental health specialists, we have seen a marked reduction in that staff and realize that when we think about the ability for folks to respond uh, and not only do their day-to-day -day activities, we recognize that there's some serious concerns um, that are meeting uh, several of you in the positions of authority as uh, these elected officials that you are, uh, no doubt represent and manage. Next slide. So uh, when you think about not only the impact of a stressed workforce, we also have the concern you've heard around laboratory and laboratory testing. As of this moment in the U.S., there have been 89 public health labs that are running the CDC test uh, in around 50 states to permit individuals to be tested once they meet a clinical, or I should say, meet the criteria for getting those tests. Uh, as of uh, this week, uh, CDC has tested close to 5,000 of those samples, um, which equate to about 1,500 patients, while the public health labs, meaning those state and local laboratories that exist, have tested over 27,000 samples. We've also seen the opportunity for tests to be uh, provided to local commercial labs, uh, and at this point in time, they have reported uh, 95,000 samples that they have tested over the course of the last few weeks. And that essentially uh, res has resulted um, in a cumulative number of, we would say, at 7.7 uh, percentage rate, meaning there have been 20,000 re results of which 1,600 uh, 1, have tested positive through those commercial laboratories. Next slide. So, when we think about everything else that's been happening, of course, the concern in the media, uh, and of course, uh, the public sentiment is one that we really have to pay attention to. There have been several concerns around the hospital staff and the healthcare industry not having the uh, requisite personal protection equipment. Uh, we've seen the concerns about shortages, not only in hospitals, but in healthcare centers, uh, centers uh, and also in private practices of having the right gloves, uh, the, even, even with respect to labs, um, the ability to have the proper equipment to even conduct those tests. Uh, we've seen uh, shutdowns of uh, several of the uh, community-based testing facilities because of either high demand or shortage of uh, particular equipment to meet the demand. Uh, and also, there's a, sh a clear shortage, question and concern around shortage of ventilators. Next slide. So when we think about that, there, of course, as governmental practitioners, how best do we help mitigate and address these types of issues that are being, that are being pushed out? 
So for example, um, there's always the concern around the federal government's uh, response, and I'm not here to necessarily point fingers, but obviously this is an all nation, all hands on deck approach that at this point in time, we recognize that we need everyone to be uh, on board with hopefully addressing this issue in a way that makes uh, the best sense and provides the uh, most um, uh, opportune uh, and comprehensive uh, approach to really controlling the spread of this disease and its impact on our society. Next slide. So I can I had to change my slide about travel restrictions because since uh, since uh, this morning or last night we've moved from significant countries being uh, on the list of uh, recommendation for non-essential no travel to now a full-blown uh, recommendation by the State Department that. Um, the U.S. citizens do not travel uh, or do not take foreign travel unless it's absolutely necessary. Next slide. So there's also been an extensive movement around the types of guidance that's available to you uh, and as well as your colleagues and partners in not only the healthcare but the community as well. So you have guidance on how to treat uh, individuals uh, who have coronavirus. Uh, there's a uh, next slide. I'm going to go through these quickly. There's guidance around um, the supply of N95 respirators. And even more recently, there's a, there's a current update that tries to address how do you critical uh, shortage of supplies, especially around respirators. And you've probably heard in the news this question of concern around those critical elements where folks are being told you can try to find alternate ways of supplying those masks or, or creating masks um, that are not necessarily optimal but are going to be beneficial at least rather than have nothing. Um, next slide. The preparations that our communities are in place, uh, the, uh, the ability to not only get the message out as what individuals who are shelter in place can do to clean and disinfect their homes, to plan accordingly, to have not only a personal plan, but even look at what community level plans can be put in place uh, that, that can really help us uh, be part of, I would say, uh, the effort to really reduce the likelihood of spread of illness. You can go through the next slides uh, quickly. So schools have been closed. Uh, move on. Uh, next slide. Businesses, uh, there's a recommendation for industries. As, uh, even recently this morning, there's been a reach out by uh, several of the uh, builders of uh, those um, healthcare facilities who are asking in construction, what can they do to help uh, scenarios where they may need to um, stand up uh, emergency or temporary uh, healthcare centers or healthcare structures to provide the likelihood of us running into a scenario where there are lots of individuals who would need hospitalization uh, on top of the COVID response. Next slide. Our emergency uh, support team, uh, either the EMS, the emergency managers, 9-11 public safety, their guidance for all, every, everyone under the sun uh, in a way to hopefully support not only uh, a strong workforce, uh, but also a safe workforce as we are doing our best to address the pending uh, spread of illness in our population. Next slide. Uh, of course, one of our key areas of concern are those long-term care healthcare centers, uh, the skilled nursing facilities, and as you've seen, and uh, which was definitely exacerbated uh, in Washington, the state of Washington, the uh, the impact of having the disease 
get into our most fragile members of our community, the elderly, the long-term care centers, and how we desperately need to ensure that there's a pathway forward uh, for supporting and encouraging not only uh, social distancing, but ensuring that our most medically fragile and high-risk members of our communities have um, some degree of, of focus on what we can do to prevent them from being exposed and becoming ill. Next slide. So I ran through those slides in a way that I hope uh, made sense, but I uh, definitely thank you for the opportunity for ICMA uh, to allow uh, us and representing the local public health departments. NATO does represent the 3,000 county and city health officers that are in your communities, and we view you as a significant partner and hope Hopefully, uh, if there are additional questions and conversations of how we can continue to support, support each other in this effort. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. That was uh, obviously uh, a very uh, important presentation, and I'm sure we will have a number of questions from our listeners. We're going to open up the phone lines now so you can ask your questions. To ask a question, click on the small hand in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. When our moderator, Rick Ehrenholt, recognizes you, please tell us your name and where you're from. Uh, Rick, what is our first question? Okay, and I'd just like to remind everybody that this session is recorded, so just know that you will be um, recorded for listening later um, on demand. So just wanted to let everybody know that. And we collected a few questions um, from our members in advance. So I wanna read one right now. As you look at the spread of COVID-19 in the US, do you see any evidence yet that our community mitigation efforts are having an impact? So the community mitigation efforts that have got into play, I would say uh, conservatively, we won't see the total impact for another week or two. Uh, so that's why uh, while they've gotten into place in several areas and have increased moving from the uh, 500 people to 250 to 10 or even less than 10, the idea is that uh, recognizing within the next week or two, we will begin to see um, has the degrees, has the illness slowed down, is the rate of infection uh, dropped, uh, and that would help us at least give a better answer. And that's why we continue to evaluate uh, the success and the value of how uh, this, these mitigation strategies are really going to help us in flattening the curve. Great. Okay, next question. What are you hearing from public health officers about their own health? Do they have backup staff or resources to help them if they get sick? It is a significant concern for us, especially with a uh, reduced staffing uh, footprint, right? Even before all of this, uh, we tell people that um, there are roughly 60 to 70 diseases that are followed on a regular basis by local health officials. And unfortunately, they don't stop while this COVID-19 is going through the population. Uh, so the concern around not only the health of our officials and our staff that are in the front lines, but also the exhaustion uh, and the need to backfill and uh, develop a, a, a sustainability effort, or I should say plan, uh, to keep uh, the uh, effort going. Uh, a lot of that has been uh, for us trying to find not only 
uh, support structure from uh, other agencies, volunteer efforts from the local schools, uh, the allied health programs um, to try to help backfill and take some of those uh, stress points on. But I can tell you uh, from my own visits to local health departments that I've been in the epicenter in several of these um, current national cases, um, they're, they're exhausted, but they're trying to do their best with what little they have. And uh, there's obviously frustration, but the, the, you know, I, I use this akin to um, even why we need to focus on things such as psychological first aid and really ensuring that uh, our responders, uh, our whole nation responders, are really um, given the backup that's necessary so that they can at least uh, be safe while at the same token doing a real good job in trying to prevent this, this thing from decimating our population. Okay, I've got one from Anne-Marie Townsend that came in through the Q&A. Um, I'll read it out to you. It says, I'm aware of multiple cases where people contacted, contacted their provider or went to get tested and they were told they didn't have enough symptoms to test. They are not being told to self-isolate, so they're going back to work. What can we do to, better, to get better information to people about self-isolation if you have any? So that's a two-part answer. Uh, for several reasons, uh, and it depends on where those individuals are and the particular messaging that's coming out of that health jurisdiction. So I'll give you New York City as one quick example. Uh, the New York City Health Department has pretty much taken the stance uh, that uh, the, there is evidence of widespread community transmission. So uh, individuals uh, in their you know, estimation have been exposed, will be exposed, and therefore uh, the need to, uh, for lack of a better word, the need for folks to be on uh, full contact tracing um, is not necessarily recommended at this point. But at the same token, you have seen with the shelter-in-place uh, designation that the idea is if you do feel sick or if you, you – so it's twofold. If you do feel sick, stay home, self-isolate. If, um, if you know you've been exposed or, act, or, or at least you should act as if you have been exposed, you should take the necessary precautions of not necessarily going into work, which you can't at this point for in New York, but not going into work and not putting others at risk who may also have a health-related is really trying to address the need for strong messaging that is coordinated among all agencies. Uh, so if I only have local spread of illness, my chances are uh, as a health department, I will be very more focused on trying to identify and, for lack of a better word, minimize the uh, spread of that at an early phase. But that's going to change if the health system becomes overwhelmed and I have more than one uh, or more than 10 or anything that can overwhelm our, our health infrastructure uh, and become going from a singular case or a focal case to a widespread, you will have a different posture in your response and your messaging. Okay. Um, another question just came in. Can anyone address how prisons are addressing this pandemic? Unfortunately, I can't give you anything more than the information that I've received where some, some cities um, have been uh, employing some different strategies with respect to their prison community, uh, specifically those who may be high risk in a prison population. Others have chose uh, to just focus on um, providing at least the optimal care within the facility, uh, but I have not gotten any other additional guidance or information as far as what are the either the Federal Bureau of Prisons or the state prison correctional facilities 
uh, or any of those other associated bodies are doing uh, specifically to the prison population. Okay. Um, what about the personal protective equipment? We hear that bandanas can be used if you run out of face masks. Are they effective? So it's not optimal. And the question of the use of bandanas comes from the critical care or the crisis critical care strategies uh, that have been placed on uh, the website for folks to uh, recognize and use. What has happened uh, from our understanding where uh, scenarios where the frontline staff and the healthcare staff are not uh, getting access to the supplies, the supply chain issues uh, with, with, with respect to the strategic national stockpile has and continues to be stressed. Uh, and I guess the messaging on the guidance was in those scenarios where it's that critical that you do not have any more supplies that you can use um, a different barrier. Um, and it's while it's not optimal, it's at least provision uh, for those critical care settings where you have really taxed and gone through a crisis management piece. I don't believe that we should be uh, in that space recognizing that while there are shortages, there are several efforts uh, to provide local public health and state public health through the national strategic stockpile with access to uh, PPE. Uh, I, the, I recognize that the FEMA and the ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness, have indicated that they are rolling out PPE and have identified vendors and, and in fact, go into the, uh, in conduct the construction and the industrial settings uh, to actually procure um, PPE from them for use in the public health uh, and the healthcare sector. So there are a lot of moving parts going into play. Uh, so the idea of having to use bandanas uh, was one of the recommendations, but I do not believe we should be at that stage yet uh, where we're going to those suboptimal uh, solutions. Great. Renee Martinez just sent in one. Our city has some essential employees working at the same location, fleet and warehouse. Should we avoid or promote rotating employees home one week and at work the next? And this is a reference to the essential, your essential employees. You should have any kind of plan or strategy around rotation. And we've even seen this in the operation centers where uh, those who are going into the operation center recognizing the level and the risk of exposure, you try to minimize and go through a rotation uh, so that you're not, um, quote unquote, wiping out or exposing your essential team uh, unnecessarily. So yes, if you have the ability with your planners uh, and your organizers and your mercy plan folks uh, and public health preparedness folks, if you can meet out a strategy for how uh, you uh, provide not only uh, social distancing, uh, but essentially ensuring that your essential, uh, I'm sorry, ensuring that your essential staff are not putting everyone or themselves at risk, I think that is the, that is the best and best approach uh, given the climate that we're currently in. Great. Okay, we have uh, one last question. Testing has been a big issue. Are public health departments getting the data they need to track who is positive? <laughs> Being very frank and honest, uh, yes and no. Um, the testing scenario right now has predominantly been through the public health lab. So the public health lab data is going to the local health departments and the state health departments. The commercial labs are, which in some cases have now been given the opportunity to test more individuals from a community level, 
you know, they are uh, slated to report those numbers to the CDC uh, and hopefully to the states and locals. Uh, but a lot of that, I think, is uh, one, one of those scenarios where we recognize things are in flux um, and in a drive to get uh, these uh, tests out into the community, uh, the focus on how that data will be collected uh, is also a priority, uh, but has been more so stressed on providing the resources to those who can actually get individuals tested so we get a better idea as far as what is the true presence and prevalence of illness in our community. Great. Okay, we are out of questions. No more have come in, so I will turn it back over. Thank you very much, Dr. Allen. I'll turn it back over to you, Beth, to close this out. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Allen. And just a reminder to those on the line who may have called in late or have to leave early, we will be posting and recording this on ICMA.org. We have a coronavirus website. Thank you, everyone. Thank <laughs> you.